Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Jim Shockey is a hunting icon. As a longtime outfitter, writer, television personality, and spokesperson, Jim has spent his fair share of time outdoors. Passionate about natural history and cultural arts, he recently opened the doors to the Hand of Man Museum, an incredible display of historical artifacts that line the walls of an old school he converted for public viewing. I met with Jim at the Hand of Man Museum to hear his story and to ask him some questions about public land, high fences, and today's modern hunter. I was born in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan back in 1957. Oh my goodness, that's a long time ago. <laughs> it's not that bad. I stayed, uh, well, I was actually trailer park boy we uh, traveled all over the saskatchewan alberta following the road construction crews my dad was a road construction superintendent well that time foreman then uh lived in a trailer park in saskatoon until we finally could afford a house i left at 17 to come to university simon fraser university out here on a swimming scholarship and i I haven't been back we still have a, a ranch out there just outside of saskatoon but uh, for winters, no, thank you. <laughs> no. <laughs> I, I, we've stayed in BC ever since. So I went off to university at 17. Met my future wife uh, a few years later. And well, actually, we wasn't much of a future wife. We were, we were married six months after we met. So we stayed out here. Louise was, she's from the Eastern Townships in Quebec. She's a Parlez Francais. And, uh, and she's gorgeous, by the way. Thank you very you much. Know. <laughs> yeah, she, she's, you know, she, she is truly. I mean, people don't know because we're on a podcast, but Louise is, she's the most beautiful person inside and out. I mean, incredible. She's, uh, she's wonderful. She has an air about her 
and I don't say this very often, but she has an air about her that you can almost feel it. Now, I, I put a weird question for you. I was actually going to ask Eva, but I'll ask you this. There's something really Southern about looking to me about Louise. If you spend any time in the, down the South, which I'm sure you have, the ladies there are ladies. Mm-hmm. And, and that's Louise. She's, she's, uh, we talk about it all the time. I mean, we are such opposites. I mean, she's right. a lady, I'm a tramp. Yeah. She's a beauty, I'm a beast. There's no, I mean, however you want to define it. But I, I actually uh, was on swimming scholarship to start with and then moved out to Ottawa in Ontario, the Carleton University, for two more years, where I centralized with our Canadian national team and then played for them for six years total. Right. 80 Olympics. I went to 78 world championships in Berlin and uh, 82 world championships, aquatic world championships in uh, Guayaquil, Ecuador. But 80, we boycotted. Jimmy Carter saw fit to you know, bring politics into the Olympics, and we boycotted. And then 84, they boycotted, and, and uh, I would have had to recentralize with the team. And I was getting married in 1984 and had a life, so that's when I, I stopped playing water polo. Were you devastated? Not at all. Are you kidding me? That's yeah. like, I, I was actually I was actually to the point in my water polo career where I, it was time to quit. I got punched by a, a Cuban in Hungary in, in Budapest uh, in 76, 77, and I spent 10 days in a hospital. So after that, if, if one of those guys even looked at me, I, I'd, I'd cut him. While playing water polo? It, it's a game where intimidation, it, it, it's almost you know, like behavior and... Um, in two, say two moose or two deer, when they come towards each other during the rut, they first the behavior is is to not fight. They want to fight, but they want to threaten the other whatever other animal. If they can get away without fighting, that's the best because no one really gets hurt and you, you still be dominant and you pass on your genes. But if they think they're equal, then they fight and one dies. And this is what water polo is kind of like. It's it's really as close as symbolic warfare of the species yeah. <laughs> that, that you can ever have. How did you get your scholarship, being a flatlander? Well, I, I was a swimmer, so so that's pretty you know quantitative. Mm-hmm. The uh, numbers will get you a scholarship if you're fast enough. So that's, that's how I started. And once you're in the pool, then the, you, know, I, I mean, you get, well, I got bored out of my tree. I went up and down, up and down, up and down. But I watched the water polo guys come in always with the prettiest girls on their on their arms and, <laughs> and and they would train after us and their training was like are you kidding me they you know they do pull push-ups and strut around looking cool and and uh so it didn't take me long to figure that out in university that i did not want to be going up and down the swimming lane when i could be playing with those guys and hanging out and and not have to be you know training every single morning every evening so yeah. so then i i started playing water polo and i you know, I was always an okay athlete, so it didn't take long to figure out the game. It's it's a game. You know, give and go still works in water polo just like it works in hockey. Right. So I, I uh, essentially walked on the national water polo team in 76 right after the Olympics in Montreal. And then how did you meet Louise then? Well, that's a, you know, I was sitting there in Vancouver. This was a lot of years later. It was 1984, and I was uh, trying to figure out how, how do you meet pretty girls? Honestly, it's, I mean, it's a conundrum when you're when you're single and younger. Uh, and I had this brainwave. Well, dance class—that's where you find pretty girls at a dance class, and they've got to be in good shape. And so I looked in the yellow pages, and I found <gasps> the, the biggest ad for dance studios. Oh my god, 
Woods is so creepy, though. It's, oh, it's so creepy. It's hunting. It's hunting. <laughs> it's hunting. And it's hunting at a water hole. It's the easiest type of hunting in the world. <laughs> You know, you, or you can go to the bar and hang out and with all the other goons and whoa, you know, be Neanderthal. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I phoned them up and said, do you have dance classes? And they said, yeah, that we're a dance studio. And I said, great, what do you got at five this evening? And they, uh, they said, well, we've got advanced ballet jazz being taught by Louise. And I said, advanced ballet jazz, that's me for sure. And so I, <laughs> I showed up at five o'clock in, my, in 1984. I had a little tight red short split up the side and, and a little white muscle shirt on. And <laughs> so Baywatch. I, I, oh, totally, totally. Uh, I walked in the door. There was like 30 women there, one gay guy, and Louise was teaching the class. And, and they were three quarters of the way through the choreography for West Side Story. Oh, so I, I uh, jumped in and, I mean, you know, we are the Jets and the Jets every day. I, I had never danced a single step in my life. It was horrible. And it was the only dance class I've ever been to before or since. <laughs> and uh, married the dance instructor six months later. Did she just find you hilarious? Is that how it worked? Well, I, you know, I, I would like to think she found me brutally handsome and, <laughs> and, and w- with great uh, physical attributes that make me such a great dancer. <laughs> yeah. But uh, whatever she whatever she saw in me, thank goodness she she didn't look any deeper than that because it was, you know, and I didn't give her any time. I mean, five months later, I asked me to marry her, and we set a date. Uh, Thirty days later, she said, "Okay, we'll get married next year." I said, "Well, why would you wait? Do you love me?" And she said, "Yeah, well, yeah." And I said, "Why would you wait?" So it was November first. I asked her. Uh, we set a date for November thirtieth, and not because we had to, just because. Well, I had to because I want to make sure there was nobody would horn in on my my operation here i was i was <laughs> right. serious hunter and i uh I, I actually went left the next morning went hunting uh out on the prairies and came back on the 28th of november louise had organized everything and and uh obviously knew what she was getting into because that, that's been our life ever since is me coming hi honey here's here's a moose and away i go again mm-hmm. and we, we were married november 30th that was 30 Four years ago this year. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, if she knew what she was getting into. So you were hunting at that point? Yes, I was hunting uh, not professionally. I, I actually started shortly thereafter. In fact, just about a month after we were, well, a couple months after we were married, uh, I started writing for hunting magazines. Okay. So how, where does the hunting enter your life? How old were you? Uh, two. Okay. I mean, so I mean, dad, grandpa? Uh, my, my dad um, and my uncle's. My grandfather didn't hunt. My my dad and and my uncles hunted, but for meat, for for them, they, I mean, they grew up. My dad was born in twenty six, lived through the depression, the dirty thirties, I and mean, they had nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, they were making, you know, eating dandelions for salad. They had nothing. So if they got a rabbit, that was you know that augmented their their food supply. And and for for my dad and my uncles, it wasn't. It was a different type of hunting. Yes, it's hunting, but it was purely. You know, th- those deer running across the field or a bunch of hamburgers running across the field. Mm-hmm. And that's how they saw the animals. And and a, a great hunt for them would be opening morning of the season in November to go out and shoot. Everybody tag up and get their deer by noon. Then you butcher it up in the afternoon and the next day you're back at work, you know, putting in your 16-hour days. Mm-hmm. And that, that, that was, you know, a, a philosophical difference between myself and, and you know, how I grew up with hunting as as part of our family. Uh, to me, I want the hunt to last as long as possible. It's about the the hunt, the search, the the challenge of testing your metal, your skills against these animals in their habitat. 
And I guess it's very similar. I mean, I don't want to segue back to, to your fishing, but it's identical. From what I hear, the, when I hear the, the fishermen talk, it's the same thing. Especially the parallels are uncanny. And I mean, the amount of stalking that we do, especially in places like New Zealand where you're sight fishing, mm-hmm. you've got to get as close to that animal as you can and and essentially trick it into taking your fly to be able to to land that fish or have the opportunity to land it. A lot of people think that we fly fish because it's harder. Oftentimes we fly fish because it's more efficient because they're actually feeding on flies, right? It's all about trickery. I just want to kind of touch base on what you said about the philosophical differences between you and your family. So you said that you saw they saw deer say as hamburger right. and you saw it more as the experience obviously with the reward of hamburger you know if this was 10,000 years ago or 20 or whatever depending on what you believe in 6,000 years ago you know, I would have been one of the hunters that if things are going well I want to look over the next hill and the next hill and the next hill so for me you know it's there's so many more aspects to hunting than just the meat you know like the exploration there's so many of the original Alpinists, mountaineers that you know they went into these the Himalayas they were they were hunters and and you know I, I guess I was of that ilk they're explorers they, you know they're they're you know to me too the the wildlands are that's my cathedral the animals you know there's I have a spiritual connection with them that you know people go oh that's hokey no sorry you're not me you're not standing in my shoes you have no idea what I think about and what I'm thinking how I feel there's absolutely a spiritual connection with these animals and and get an animal or not you know i don't need to actually kill that animal to to think that i've had a an incredible hunt you know an incredible experience in the wildlands and and that's that's where the difference is when it comes to meat and i, I hey I, I love eating we're gonna have moose tenderloin this evening for dinner i'll be barbecuing here as soon as we're done and and that's a uh you know that's a I mean, it's a part of it, but it's it's a small, tiny little part. And certainly the kill, the actual killing of the animal is is almost not worthy of mention. People, I'm, I'm reading in the press today about some young lady that that killed a, a giraffe over in Africa. And, and, you know, this is their latest Cecil lion. It, it just sickens me when people don't understand what hunting really is about, yet they're judging you know, the the hunt on a kill. And thing, and that's why we're doing it for the ego. It's wrong. It's just that's that's wrong. It's it's you know to marginalize hunters, to ostracize them. You know, it's hunters are great conservationists. They're great spiritualists. They're great explorers. They put their money where their mouths are, and and I'm sure fishermen are the same thing. I mean, part of your fishing licenses goes to the conservation of the fish species. And to be fair, yes, you can catch and release. It's a little bit more difficult for us to catch the animal and release it and eat it. It's just, but yes, we can still experience the hunt. But where do you draw the line between it being a hunt? Is the definition of hunting killing things? It's not to me. Not at all. Again, how do you define success? Is it a dead animal or is it the experience? Yeah, exactly. So warm, beautiful sunrise with the coyote wind and and, mm-hmm. and and the hope of a new day dawning. I mean, that's how you define the success of a hunt. You know, the, the kill and, and the eating it later, yeah, that's great. You know, I think it was Ortega de Gasset said, the, the Spanish philosopher, that I don't hunt to kill, I kill to have hunted. And and he got it right, right? Because if you don't actually be part of it, then you're a voyeur. Yeah, and no offense to the all the cameramen out there, because they work hard to get their photograph, and that's their 
kill, essentially, or their success, their measure of success. They got this perfect shot with the light sparkling right in the eye of the tiger. But, you know, you got to go buy, what, a cow to eat at that point? Like, like you know, it's, it's, it's a form of voyeurism. And I, and I don't mean that in a negative, derogatory way. I just mean that when you're part of nature, you embrace it. You accept the fact that we have the responsibility for killing an animal that we're eating. And someone out there right now is listening going, oh, it's, he's just wrong. But how was, your, how was your chicken last night? You know, how, how was that burger that you had, that steak, or those prawns? You know, you had calamari. Is that right? Yeah, you just, I don't know. For me, associating where my meat comes from is very special. I, I mean, you're preaching to the, to the choir. Right yeah. here. It's, 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 uh, and, and it's very difficult for someone sitting in the city to, to understand that or, or living in their acreage outside of the city. But, you know, talk to a farmer, they get it. A rancher, they get it. It's, it's, it's just one of those, you know, never the twain shall meet. And, and that's fair enough because historically there was only 10% of us were actual hunters. You know, oh, really? Well, yeah, I was going to ask you that. I would have thought 50% of our population hunted. I thought the men hunted and the women No, I, 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 no again, I'm, I'm looking at this hopefully from a perspective of 60 years on this planet. And, and I would say around the world, 10% of the people are hunters. And the rest in the past may have you know, helped out, quote unquote, to you know, fill the larder. And maybe they were standing in the right spot at the right time, but they're not actual hunters. You don't mean by what they actually go out and do. You mean by how they are wired? Yeah. I mean, I yeah. mean hardwired, innate. I, I think it's a genetic... I, I'm sure that somebody will do a study someday and figure out that 10% of us are hunters. I hope And 10% so. are, whatever the gene is, they have the antigene. It's a balance that we probably had to strike back in our tribal days, you know, caveman days, if we believe in that. that that's too many animals being taken... You had to have the balance of the one side of the tribe saying, no more killing. Well, that's fair enough. It, it's, it's a balance. And then there's 80% that swing the vote, even historically, in the tribe. Now, if the tribe's starving, I'm suspecting 90% of the people are out there hunting and there's 10% protesting. But when the tribe's doing well, you know, then there's less people out there hunting. And, and then you have the hunters. And of that 10% of the hunting you know, Gene, and you know, there's a scientist out there again going, well, that's pseudoscience, whatever. You know, I'm just speaking from, from layman's perspective. But I would suspect that of the 10% that were hunters, you know, only 10% of them were really good. You know, and, and, and then to varying degrees of, of uh, ability going up that, that ladder. And, you know, that, that's, you, you didn't really need more hunters than that. You know, you don't need how many people are farmers in this world right now? How, what percentage? You know, they're providing for most of us, ranchers. How many ranchers? Well, they're providing for most of us. So they, you know, 10% is plenty to provide for the, the tribe of, of 100%. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, again, it's pseudoscience, but, but it's, you know, it's common sense as well and experience that, that uh, I, I just hope will be backed up someday by a scientific study. So do I, because honestly, my whole life I thought I was sick. And this, I'm going to just be totally honest with you. I thought I was really sick because it was all I wanted to do from like the age of four. Mm-hmm. Even when I was in Girl Guides, you know, I did the full circle of Girl Guides and we'd like stalk, we'd play games where we'd stalk each other. And for a while there in my teens, I actually was wondering if I was like one of those crazy psychos on the t- and movies who was like going to start strangling cats. Cause I just, you know, I, I wanted to stalk things. I wanted to hunt. I wanted to be involved in that. Yeah. And if, if it had been more mainstream and, 
maybe it would have helped if my parents didn't look so down upon it. But I think if I, if I felt like there were other people who were like-minded, I wouldn't have felt so crazy. I didn't want to kill things, but to hunt it, wanting so to hunt it, it feel, I needed it in my hands. I, again, now I never felt the crazy part because I, crazy means you, you care what someone else thinks because you, you can never be crazy to yourself. That's an interesting point, actually. Of course not. You can't, if you care what the other people think, and I never cared, and I still don't care. It's this is who I am, and and I'm really comfortable inside this skin. And yeah, take me to task. You know, attack me, yeah. call me names. I don't really care. It doesn't doesn't you know. <laughs> I I don't care. I was worried that I wasn't wired right, Jim. That's what I was worried about. Right to be normal and all. Yeah, and okay, fair enough. Yeah, and that, and, and all my friends. Okay, yeah, no, that's very interesting. I never thought it about is. it like that. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you have the the confidence and faith in yourself to be yourself and be honest to who you are you know then it doesn't matter you know whether you're normal or not normal how you fit who who cares that's their problem it's not your problem but it's very difficult in in our world to to you know at 14 years of age to stand up i want to kill a deer to eat it you know and you're a young girl i mean that's you, you again this is where you get marginalized and and uh and that's, you know, it's a very effective way of dealing with essentially minorities. And when you, when you think about it, and, and I mean, we're getting way into, you know, some, some deep conversations here, but if your sexual orientation is, is different, if you were in the 60s, you know, how would you, you would have kept that hush-hush. Nowadays you don't. You know, and, and you know, they've essentially proven that, what is there, 74 different genders now? This is, you know, it's not cut and dried in this world. And, and what we all need to understand, the one, one thing that I've learned about all my travels, I mean, I spend 300 days a year on the road around this world for the last 20 years. And that's, there's a lack of tolerance in this world these days. Mm. There's a lack of tolerance. And, and if we accept and embrace tolerance, we then don't judge people because, you know, you know their sexual orientation because they like to hunt for their food because you know it, it, and i think it'll swing back i mean i i hope so I, I think it's gone so far you know either direction nowadays that there's just again i'll say it again never the twain shall meet and it but but eventually things balance out and 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 tolerance i'm hoping will be born sometime along the way in the next you know 10 20 years i mean people like yourself you're saying you're a hunter. My parents don't hunt, you say. And I hunt. Well, how can anybody say, you know, that this is inside you. This is who you are. And it doesn't have, it can skip generations. But no doubt in your past, you had a hunter that that gene was passed to you. One of your antecedents, I don't know who it was. It could have been a great, 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 great grandfather. But that gene manifested itself in you. You're a hunter. And you're standing up and saying that you're a hunter. Look at you, a beautiful young lady, Thanks. fisher lady that goes into hunting, and you need the headaches for that to, to stand out in public and say that you're a hunter? No, that's because you are a hunter and you're proud of it. And, and it's very difficult in our world where, where people jump on you for everything that they don't tolerate mm. for you to stand up and be who you are, when you're, especially when you're younger. And, and, and I mean, it's, it's a sad thing, but in the end, you know, you know, I, I'm a firm believer that fundamentally we're all pretty good inside. 
And and we will eventually come to the understanding that it's okay, you know, that that person's a hunter. I don't hunt, but it's okay that they do. Mm-hmm. And and I don't know enough about conservation or wildlife, you know, the, the health of the wildlife species around the world. I, I just read what I see in the popular press. So I'm really not a, in a position to judge it. You know, but they are. They live it. They're there every day walking the walk with these animals. Without animals, they can't be hunters. You know, they're looking after them, and I accept it. I tolerate. You know, I, I think I've become a better person because I've been on the other side of the slings and arrows. And and like I say, I don't care, but, but it sure never feels good when someone's attacking you. Well, wait a minute. You know, I, I know I'm a good person. I, I pat my dog. You know, I've got two wonderful children that are raised... You know, they have beautiful children themselves now. And, and you know, I love my wife, married for 34 years. I mean, yeah, I'm, I got kind of a big footprint because I, I, I drive a big pre-94 Mighty Dodge. So I'm, you know, I'm a, maybe I'm, I'm not as You're not responsible. perfect? <laughs> yeah, no, no I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a Prius perfect person. Right. Yeah, but, <laughs> but, but I am who I am. Yeah. And I know I'm a good person. I, I, you know, I, I don't hurt people, but right. I hunt. You know, and, and so... It's difficult when you're being attacked, you know, I mean, my record's 88 death threats in one day. That's insane. Uh, no, Eva's record well, is, she puts me to shame. She's like 2,000. Her and I are going to be having a big talk about that. Yeah, yeah, well, she's, and, and you two would have a lot in common because mm-hmm. you stand out and say, this is who we are, you know, and I'm proud of who I am. And and that's really what it comes down to is, you know, and I, I say it all the time, you throw, you know, throw me into the Coliseum with the lion's <laughs> And that's fine. You know, I'll get eaten by a line. I have faith in, in what I do. I know I'm right. And, and I know that the people that are judging me and judging other hunters are wrong. You know, I, I'm so happy to see the young ladies like yourself and, and young men too out there that are standing up and saying, in the face of all this anti, 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 protest, 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 hate, 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 you know, they're standing up and saying, well, wait a minute, I do this. And it's not wrong, and I'm proud of who I am. Mm-hmm. I think it's great. I, I actually am, am bullish on the future. I, I think that people like yourself are really changing minds about, uh, again, that word tolerance. But how do we reach those? Well, we'll get to that. We'll get to that part later about how to reach the people who don't get into hunting. Maybe we never do. As long as the popular press is controlled by people with ideologies that you know they're trying to force upon us, then we may never reach them. But but, social media is, you can't stop this podcast from going out to whoever is interested in listening to it mm-hmm. and whoever they want to forward it on to to listen to it. So, so if you continue doing what you're doing and you make 10 converts that do the same thing and they make 10 converts each that do the same thing, I mean, do the math. Exponential increases, it doesn't take long for, to swing anything into big numbers right and 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 we know we you know and i know we are absolutely right we are on the side of good we're we're right yeah we kill animals but that doesn't make us bad people and it's not like for me jim i don't enjoy killing animals of course not it puts me to tears every time It, it it it's not something that i fantasize about i mean obviously i fantasize about getting outside and exploring and getting onto a big animal but in that moment, that's not what doesn't get me hot and horny. You know what I mean? I, I'm, <laughs> if you well, will. Well, I like, mean, <laughs> when you put it that way, yeah, I guess I know what you mean. It, my my it, parents, I think my parents thought that I, that I wanted to, they see a dead animal and they think that person went out that day and got a dead animal. I mean, 
it took me three years to get my first deer of like really hunting a lot and, and it's, it took it's me not, ages. It's not about the kill. And that, that again, that's how we're vilified in the press. We're, we're stereotyped mm-hmm. and, and they make it seem like that's the pinnacle for us is, is the kill. And, and we're sick because we enjoy killing the animal. Well, you know, I kind of think it's sick when you're eating, you know, that hamburger that come came from 20 different pigs and 30 different goats and who knows what else is in that thing you just ate. I think that's really sick. And the fact that you hire someone with, what, a hood on their head to, to pop this animal in the head with a twenty two shell, you know, or, I mean, have you ever seen what happens to a chicken? We we raise chickens. And My I, husband works in chickens. Okay, so, so it, it's... I was appalled the first time, you know, my wife, Louise, and I, we bought our little acreage and we were raising chickens and, and one had babies and, and holy smokes, they grew up and there's six roosters crowing at, you know, 4.30 a.m. Yeah. And, uh, and my, Louise, who's total, she wouldn't kill a fly, like literally would push a fly out the door. She couldn't kill anything, incapable of it. She said to me, you got to do something about the chickens. And, and I, so I went out there, grabbed these six roosters at night. We made a box with all little nice little house and little beds for them and took them to the abattoir the next day, the chicken guy. And he grabbed them literally by the leg, hung them on a hook. When he had all six hanging there upside down, he, he shocked them with, with an electric shock to stun them and they went stiff and then he cut their throats and, and let them bleed out. And I mean, and then threw them, their, these beautiful chickens that we'd raised into this tumbling thing and all the feathers came whipping out and there's little carcasses and little beaks flying everywhere and, and then he you know eviscerated him in front of me and handed me back to him in a bag it's like huh, 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 huh. you know like i was horrified and that's without dipping them in chlorine and, all, and paa and all the other stuff well, yeah to make them safe for us to eat mm-hmm. well the point is anyone that's listening to this right now that thinks they're holier than thou sitting on a pedestal well, no i'm a, a but they ate a chicken in the last you know lifetime Give me a break. As a hunter, I was horrified. I was horrified. And and people will say that I'm the person that enjoys killing. No, no, that's not what hunting's about. It's nothing about that kill. And, and again, if you analyze it, the pictures that you won't post, you know, that's that's the trigger, the hot button that makes these anti-hunters go crazy. I mean, their heads explode when they see this picture because they only see that picture and think, that's what the entire hunt is about. Mm-hmm. For us, that picture is a memory of an accomplishment. We, you took three years to get your first deer. Uh, you know, how long did it take every other hunter to get their animals? This is a, a huge accomplishment to finally be there with that thing that you were after for all these years that you spent, you know, how many hours of practicing so with your bow? So much time. Yeah, you know, days, weeks. The skills... Sacrifice has almost lost my marriage over There you go. (laughs) Yes. Here you go. This is a, you know, and and so that picture holding that animal, these are the memories of your sacrifice, of your accomplishment, of your, you know, attaining a goal. It's it's not an ego thing that you enjoyed killing the animal. And and it's, uh, again, we're never going to be able to tell that, that story the way the popular press is being run these days. Right. It's not possible. It's it's a jackboot, brown shirt control of our popular press, and, and they're not going to let us. And if you don't, you know, hail Hitler to everybody, then you're going to be the next one that's going to be on the chopping block. You know, and it's, it's, it, that's so pathetic and so sad. I mean, we've gone through this in history over and over and over again. The people that stand up and say, well, wait a minute, maybe that's not right. 
you know, and, and this group thing says, and they jump all over you and, and try and kill you. Mm-hmm. I mean, this has been done over and over and over in history. And, and in the end, you know, like I say, the hopefully the uh, right prevails. It always has in the past. I see no reason why it wouldn't in the future. And, and we end up, we strike a balance and we have tolerance for a few years, decades, hopefully. And, and then they often something else. Who knows what they're after next. <laughs> Coming up, Jim and I continue our conversation. I'd also like to take a moment to announce that Anchored has entered into a new and exciting partnership and is now part of Meat Eater Inc. I'll be posting a new episode and article weekly on www.themeateater.com. Be sure to check out the new website for more articles and content from other contributors within the Meat Eater group. You know, we, it didn't take us long uh, you know, like I say, Louise is very female and I'm very male. And, and you know, three months later, I don't have to explain to everybody no. what went on. But we we were, Louise got pregnant and, and uh, she's very female. So she was very morning sick for oh, about eight months with our first son, Branlin. Oh, no. And, and uh, there was nothing, you know, like she just was bedridden, couldn't move hardly. She was so nauseous, like high seas the whole time. So so I was had a lot of spare time on my hands. And I, um, reading hunting magazines, I grew up reading hunting magazines. At that time, that was the media. And, uh, you know, I, I kept thinking to myself, well, these guys are, they're getting into how to, how to, how to, how to. Mm. Easy to write, horrible to read to me. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I want the romance of being out in the wildlands, like Jack O'Connor, Howard Ruark, um, Peter Capstick, you know, the, these guys, even Hemingway. I mean, that that was a romance involved with it. And, and I thought that was missing, and I thought I could do better. So I started writing. It was 30, well, 33 years ago now. I, I wrote my first hunting article. It was for a magazine called Bo Bender Magazine. I got $42 for the article. And right. <laughs> the editor was Kathleen Windsor. Kathleen, wherever you are, thank you. She saw something in, in the you know longhand, written out, horrible spelling, no punctuation article and and, uh, and bought my next, I think, two articles. And then I went on to Western Sportsman and... BC Outdoors and eventually was, um, I don't know, discovered, but after about six years down in the States, was embraced and, and never looked back in terms of the writing. So I, I've actually published a thousand articles at least. In, in next door in this museum, in the, the library, you'll see a, a big giant bookshelf and every one of those magazines on that bookshelf I've got an article in. No kidding. No, that's that's what I, 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 I'm probably more of a writer. I'll come full circle to writing once I stop traveling 300 days a year. I have to get the experiences to really be a great writer. And uh, I, I mean, I love it. I love the, I love the, the, I don't love the process, but I, I do love the final result. And that, that's uh, something that I'm looking forward to sitting down and you know, I've got 20,000 typewritten pages of journals that, that I need to go through and edit and put in a form that somebody would actually read. Oh, I think you'll find some readers. What were you doing for work during all of this, though? I'm sure you weren't making your living off $42 an article. No, no, I, I was, uh, when I came out of university back about 78 or so, I, I um, fancied myself a real estate developer. So I, I, you know, I took psychology and biology in university, a combined major, and then got out and said, no, I'm, you know, you're not, never going to make, you know, a living for the lifestyle that I want. Uh, so I thought, but real estate developers, they really do well. So I, I took construction courses and took a job as a, at night and took a job during the day as a construction laborer. On Vancouver Island? Or? Uh, in Vancouver. 
Oh, okay. Actually, Andre Molnar uh, was a good friend of mine. He was a water polo player. Hung- Hungary, their national sport is water polo. And uh, I was playing on our BC team at that time, and Andre liked me, and he said, if you ever wanted a job. So when I came out to the coast after university in uh, Ottawa, uh, I called him up and said, Andre, you know, now I'm here and I need a job. And he said, great, here's a shovel. Go out and work with uh, the guys on the labor gang and take courses at night. And he said, as smart as you are, you'll rise or you won't rise. It's your choice. Mm-hmm. So so he helped me with that you know, that job in those days. And I learned and rose fairly quickly. So I became a project manager you know, after just a couple of years and had the same guys, you know, all the superintendents were working now underneath me. It was, it was an interesting dynamic in those days. But uh, Did you have children at this point? No, no, this is pre-Louisi. Okay, oh, okay, gotcha. So this is in the early 70s, or late 70s, and then 81 interest rates went up to uh, 21%. And I walked, I had, I had, at that time I was on my own, I had 10 houses going up in White Rock and three apartment buildings in Castlegar. I was the... You know, the, I put all the money together with the land and the guys, and the, uh, and I had to go to everybody and say, "Listen, this can't work anymore. Not at these interest rates." And and nobody lost money. Nobody went bankrupt. I walked away with my dog, which wasn't much of a dog, and my stereo, which wasn't much of a stereo, and my little Honda, or whatever I was driving in those days. And and that's when I realized I, I needed to, you know, people with money will always, you know, it has its favorites, and money will always go back to them. So you might as well just do something that you love doing. And I didn't love real estate development. I thought I'd be pretty good at it and and dreamed about you know, being a gazillionaire. But but then I realized, no, you know, that's that's a false dream. So I, I started doing garage sales and finding antique furniture that I refinished. And I loved that. I loved it. It's treasure hunting. It's hunting. Yeah, again. I was going to ask you, it's hunting, right? It's the same thing. And, and, and there was a vernacular... Um, in the Western Canada, Dukabor furniture, Mennonite furniture, Hutterite, Ukrainian furniture, when these immigrants came over, they didn't have any money. So, that, And that was my antecedents my, on my mother's side was Ukrainian immigrants uh, oh, okay. living in Alberta. And, and uh, they had to make everything by hand. And they made it in the old style from the old country, even though in the old country maybe they had better quality there. Here they had nothing. So they started from scratch with a form that was handmade 200 years before, but suddenly it's in Western Canada. And you know now it's about 100 years old, 120 maybe. When I was dealing in it back in the 80s, it wasn't even considered antique because it was too new. So I started an antique store in Vancouver. Now this was, the store came after Louise. When Louise met me, I was selling out of my, I was living in, a, I'd rented a house in 18th and Dunbar, somewhere there in Vancouver anyway, near Kitsilano. Mm-hmm. And I, I was living in the basement and I was refinishing furniture in the basement, and the ceiling was only five foot six high. And I, I had a, a little part of the room, or the basement, uh, cordoned off with plastic and a little plastic door so that the sawdust wouldn't get into my actual bedroom. And then I rented the upstairs to students at UBC and would uh, have garage sales every weekend. That's, those are air quotes, by the way. Yeah, I see Evie, that. Evie told <laughs> right. me it's so passe and uncool, but that's I just air quoted. <laughs> So, so people would come to my garage sale, and, and the students I rented to, part of the deal was any th- furniture, and it was furnished suite, you know, up the bedrooms and the upstairs. But I said, if I bring people into sale, I'm going to take your whatever you, you have in your, you know, chest of drawers in there. If I'm selling it, your stuff's going out, and I'll give you a new chest of drawers. So I, I had a perfectly, you know, furnished suite for them, but... Sometimes people would walk in their bedroom, hi, how are you doing good? I want to buy that. Good, okay, bye. And, <laughs> okay. And, and so that's how I made a living until the city shut me down. And Why did they shut you down? 
Well, I think there was something like a hundred cars parked around my okay. my little place that I was renting, and and the the city guy came and said, "This isn't a garage sale." And I said, mm, "Not really." You know, I had two or three people helping me refinish in that basement, and anyway, that, that's what Louise married. That's what she. That's where I lived in this little ratty, dust infested hole in in, in the basement. So. That just makes her even cooler. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> obviously she saw through, well, she yeah. said, you know, she respected that I worked with my hands, which I did. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From what I've read, you started a furniture store. I think a few. Yeah, we you had, and Louise did. Yeah, three in Vancouver. At that point, we were we were married, and and uh, we had three stores. I think one big warehouse down in Yale Town, and a big gallery in Yale Town. Uh, when Yale Town wasn't Yale Town, it was like pre Yale Town. And um, on Tenth and Alma, we had a, a store as well, Folk Art Interiors. And some famous person with an eye for very. Nice design has they came in there's, and there's, there's <laughs> you want to tell the story. Yeah, I, I would I would like to I would like to say they had a, an eye for nice design. You're probably referencing Ralph Lauren. Yes, I am. Yeah, he he came in one day with his entourage and bought. You know, I mean, I didn't know who he was, Ralph Lauren. I, I you know, I, I don't know who Carl Lagerfeld or any of these guys are. They're there, but apparently it was him walked in with his entourage. I remember I was in the store and I who's that guy? And they were taking notes and pictures and and basically they you know, bought out all of my inventory, including in the warehouse uh, in Yaletown. They, uh, we furnished all of Ralph Lauren's at that time. He, he was trying to, I think, create another brand called Ralph Lauren Country. So he started with the first store, the uh, inaugural store was in Vancouver. We furnished that. And then he started opening them up through the States in various locations. And we furnished all of those. Oh, wow. Then I ran out of furniture. Like literally all, everything I'd collected other than our own personal collection was gone. So we used those funds, Louise and I, to move to Vancouver Island from Vancouver and buy an acreage uh, on a lake out here and, and have lived here ever since. Are the elk on the island as big as they are in, say, the States or Colorado? Yeah, they, these are the Roosevelt subspecies. So you've got the Thule elk subspecies and the Rocky Mountain elk subspecies. The um, largest bodied of all the elk species are the Roosevelt elk. Their antlers, if you you know measuring antlers, they're not as big as the uh, Rocky Mountain elk, but they're heavier and, and uh, crowned at the top, like a red stag from England or, or Europe. It's interesting, the elk are right across North America. I've, I've hunted them in Mongolia and, and uh, mm. Kazakhstan and Russia. Really, the progenitors of our elk, according to the scientists, are, are the high Altai elk in uh, the high Altai mountains in, in Asia. And they look just like ours, sound just like ours, and, and uh, somehow crossed the land bridge way back when, and, and that's that's our elk grandfathers. Wow. Where does the, just jumping ahead a bit, where does the Yukon purchase come in? Well, once we were on Vancouver Island, I, I basically shut down two of the stores in Vancouver. One of them, my manager, Davey Johnson, he took over. He's still there now. I think it's still Folk Art Interiors down on... 10th and Elma, as far as I know. Cool. Um, 
but we opened another one here on Vancouver Island, you know, just to keep playing at it. But I, I knew I was, I was really, my heart wasn't in it anymore. I love collecting, but I didn't love the, the selling part. Mm. Uh, so I needed a, um, some revenue stream. So I, I went to guide. I, I offered to guide a, an outfitting operation. The outfitter told me, forget it. He was on Vancouver Island. He said, I'm not going to hire you. And I, I think I had an earring at the time, a long hair and Fu Manchu, whatever. I mean, I was, you know, and, and that, in the hunting world, that's looked askance at, you know. They, they, so he said, "No way," and and I, I have no problem with that because let my actions speak for myself or for themselves. Like it's, and I, I told him, "No, I'll guide for free." Oh, so, no kidding! Yeah, so he hired me. Oh, of course, instantly. Doesn't matter what you look like. Then was it the <laughs> okay. sign said the long-haired hippie? You know, like it doesn't matter. You know, if you're going to do it for free. So I, uh, I guided for two years and then for bought, free. Yeah, and then I, I bought the opening territory from them because we had all the Ralph Lauren dollars. Wow. So I had the money to buy it. Or On ish. Vancouver Island? Yeah, Vancouver Island. That's when I that's where I started outfitting 26 years ago now. How much property do you need on Vancouver Island to have a successful uh, that, At that time, it was 3,000 square miles. It was essentially the north end of the island and the west coast down to Gold River. And you owned that or you had the rights to well, hunt it? Yeah, that, that's a, it, that's an interesting process that most people don't understand it our, our british columbia is divided up into about 270 279 ish outfitting areas and they are like it's like a deed to a house if you buy it you're not it's not a lease from the government it's not a nine nine year lease or it's a, like a deed but it's to the the right to use the land it's like our raw days on classified water systems. Kind you of. own them. You own them. The you, rights to guide on them. Right. Same thing. So, so if you die, it goes to your estate. Can you sell them yes. off? Yes. Yeah, same that's, as our raw days. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's the same thing for outfitting. It, if if I die, it would go to my estate, and you, you have to be qualified. I mean, it's not you know Joe Public can't walk in there and buy an outfitting territory. You've got to have two years of guiding, like twenty four months of guiding, not just you know two months out of one year and two months of the next year, that counts as two years. It doesn't. Mm-hmm. It, you've got to guide for a long time and then take the test. And, you know, so there's not a lot of people qualified to buy one. So so that's what I bought on the north end of Vancouver Island was the Pacific Rim Guide Outfitting Territory. It was owned by a fellow named Wayne Weeb at that time. Um, and I was writing, and that was also, you know, 91, whenever they, when television was starting to come on board as opposed to writing for magazines. And because I had been writing already for several years, I was fairly well-known in those circles. And, and when these same magazines started doing television shows, because they just looked at it as an extension of a magazine, you know, not realizing later this TV was going to swallow up magazines, they, they needed someone to take them on hunts so they could video them. And they figured, well, we're the editor, so we're, we're the natural choice to be the host, the star of the TV show. So they'd come up to me and say, can you set up a hunt for that? Yeah, I can do that. And I, so the, my first, you know, I was first time on television was about the same time, uh, way back in 91 on ESPN, I believe, 91, 92 through there, TNN, the old national network that I think is Spike TV now. All right. You know, the, the, we then, you know, we did well on both the TV side as a co-host and then also as uh, on the outfitting world because I had so many connections for booking hunts and mm-hmm. natural way to market them was just writing articles about them. Right. Um, How long did you guide for, Jim? Well, you know, I guided up until probably five, six years ago. I still guide one hunt a year. I donate it to raise money for conservation. It, it, they bring quite a bit of dollars now 
you know, 40, the last one I, where I said I guide was $40,000 just for me to guide the person. And that goes 100% to conservation, those dollars. Awesome. So I still will do that hunt every year, but I, I'm way too old and cranky and crabby to guide anymore. It's, uh, you know, I, I mean, I can fake it for a couple hours, but maybe a day if I have to, but if you, to fake it for five days with somebody, you know, where you're constantly with them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you're in a camp, what you are comes out and, if the person can't walk, and you know they haven't practiced the skills, and they, you know, yeah, it makes me crazy. I had no idea you guided for so long. As soon as I read that you did that much guiding, my respect level for you went through the roof. Because until you've been a guide, whether regardless of what kind of guiding it is, I don't think people realize the tolerance, the patience, the sort of. The personality that you have to have to put in that many years of guiding. So kudos to you. That's a lot of work. Oh, thank you. I think we've, at this point, we've outfitted 2,500 people over the years. And and I personally guided over 350. And like I say, I I couldn't do it. I I do it nowadays to raise money for conservation, but but not. and, and, And that's fair enough. When I was younger, I mean, I loved it. I was... This was a passion and, and a goal to make this person's dream come true. And you do, well, you know, you're a guide. You give, give, give. You know, if they want you to be their therapist, that's what you are. You know, they want to hear your stories. You're a storyteller. You know, they want a shoulder to cry on, you know, a buddy, whatever. You have to become that. And, and you, you get burnt out. And I see a lot of the older guides, you know, slash outfitters, you know, they, just, they stay in too long. And, and I, I've got a great crew of guides nowadays. In fact, I'm probably on my second, third crew of, of guides. That you know, they've gone through the the shocky boot camp they call it, and, and you know, they're great. They they put a hundred percent effort into what they're doing, and and I, they're better than I am. I mean, they see better than I do. They hear better than I do. They're more patient. They you know, more understanding. So so I yeah, you know, it's it, it's just a point you come to in your life where you say, I'm not good enough to be a guide anymore is the bottom line. I'm, I can't do it. Not at a professional level. When you take it, when you have pride in what you're doing as a guide, it's a huge, huge weight on your shoulders. It just, it eats at you. And you, you know, cause you want, so expensive and they've put their whole, sure. they have one trip a year. It's, it's their, their dream, dream animal. And yeah. yeah and you and it's in your hands to make their dream come true or not come true. And, and it's on your shoulders if it doesn't, you know, come true for them. Those people that you're guiding don't, you know, they work 50 weeks a year. They get their two weeks, and one of those weeks they spend all their savings on to come with you to catch their fish or, or to get their deer or whatever they're after, moose. It's, it's uh, I mean, it's a big responsibility, and, and you just can't take that pressure for forever, which you you know. I mean, you're smart enough to get out at, obviously, a young age. I, I waited till I was probably in my late 40s before I got out. How long did you do television and guiding at the same time? Well, right from the start, because okay. because it, it wasn't my own shows in those days. I was always a co-host on on these various networks and various TV shows. And about two thousand one ish, I um, started my own. I did my first video. I think, it was, or maybe it was nineties, late nineties. Canadian hunting giant Canadian whitetails. I think we called it Canadian Whitetail Adventures, something like that. Anyway, that that was a very expensive learning process because I needed, I knew how to work the front of the camera, you know, the high Young Jim Shockey stuff, but behind the scenes, the editing, the, you know, I, I mean, I remember spending one whole Christmas 
in front of my little DVR on TV or what do they call in those days, VHS tape, rewinding, the putting VCRs, down. VCRs, yeah. VCRs, yeah. The, the, doing the, the timelines, you know, and, and with the sound and the, and the visuals and figuring it all out. Okay, if we edit there, cut this. And yeah. I built it over Christmas, a two-week period. I never left, you know, 16 hours a day in front of that TV doing that. I mean, it was horrible father and husband, you know, because I was fascinated with this process. Anyway, that was our first DVD, and, or, well, it was VHS in those days. And um, that sold quite well, and, and we started our own TV show, I think, 2003. So however many years ago, that 15 years ago? I'm going to sit down with Eva later because there's going to be people wondering. Um, her and I will we'll talk more about this, but when did she come on to the show with you? You, you know, Evie, uh, Evie was like Louise. I mean, she was like a little Louise. Our son, Bramlin, was, was a hunter. He, he was loved it, he, you know. I remember at 10 years old, he was climbing around the mountains with me and loving it. Uh, Eva was doing ballet and, and being you know pretty and, and doing girl stuff. And, and we just never even thought in a billion years that Eva would ever want to hunt. I, mean, I think she maybe shot one gopher when she was young and said it was temporary insanity <laughs> at that time. <laughs> yeah. and, and then she went off to university. Basically, I tell the story, she... she uh, looked at the globe and, and, you know, daddy lives up here, so I'm going to go here and, and basically went to the other side of the world and then Googled most expensive universities on that other side of the world. It was Australia. Of course. And, and uh, went, went to university and came home. I think she was 21, 20, and, and walked in the door and basically said, Dad, okay, I'm ready to learn how to hunt or I want to learn how to hunt. And I, and I Louise and I both nearly fell over, like, you want to, Hunt like what? Where, you know, where is Eva? What have you done with her? She said, "Yeah, I'm old enough now that you and I can be friends, and I'm you know I want to learn how to hunt." Wow! So so I instantly got on the phone and set up something for Africa. Lots of animals, lots of interesting places. Nothing, you know. And, and warthogs aren't the cutest thing in the world. And that was her first animal that she went after. Oh! So so it was quite quite late. She was twenty twenty one years old before she got her first animal, and and. And she truly is a hunter. She truly She's got is. Yeah, oh, there, there's no question. Yeah. She, she is. She loves it. And and you know, not like I'm. I'm. You know, I'm one of those one percentile guys. You know, like I'm. I, I, if I'm going to do it, it's going to be all in, mm-hmm. all the time. Evie is is more a lifestyle. You know, it's, it's part of who she is for sure. But not. She's not going to spend 300 days a year being wet, cold, and and. Uh, beat up on some mountain somewhere you know that's not her thing but she loves the the process of the hunt loves it is good at it so so yeah she's she's never never looked back do you enjoy television more because television can beat you up too i you know tv i i love it i mean i think it's and and not there's you know i see a lot of the young people guys particularly go into it you know it's that fame drug they want to they want to sign hats at a show and be recognized and that's a horrible motivation to be on TV because that's when it will beat you up. If you're going into it with, this is who I am, this is what I have to say, and, and here's what I have to show you, and if that's not good enough, go get a job as a, you know, doing, doing whatever, uh, selling cars. It doesn't matter. You know, you tried, but don't try and be something you're not because you want to be famous. You know, and that's when you get the antics and the acting, and we're all horrible actors. That's just, that's the other, you know, the, 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 it's a recessive gene that hunters don't have we're horrible actors we just are what we are and and if like i say if that's not good enough then 
don't feel bad about that. Just go get do something that you're good at. But you know, yeah, it's uh, I like the camera. I think it's uh, for me. It's part of the hunt now. It's a challenge. Bow hunting is incredibly challenging. Throw the camera in there as well. And even if you're rifle hunting, throw a camera in that makes it into a bow hunt because you you know everything's got to be right. Mm -hmm. And the cameramen are the noisiest, you know, worst eyesight on the planet, other than. Matt Zanillo, and I mean, I've, there's a few actually that I'm, I'm saying that kind of facetiously because they they are our special forces in our in our industry. If I get charged, they get charged, but yeah. they're holding a camera. You know, I, I can defend myself. In fact, we were just charged the other day. Taylor Smith and I were attacked by a cougar on Vancouver Island. No kidding. Yeah, two weeks ago, it was. Uh, there's more fatalities by cougars yeah. on Vancouver Island than anywhere else. In yeah, the world, highest right? density of cougars anywhere, yeah. and there's you know, there, unfortunately, I think that's. That you know, that's going to go up here in the next little while. Just a lot of wolves, and and they're killing a lot of deer. We're making the wolves into uber predators. We make roads. As soon as you make a road, a wolf becomes an uber predator. It, it just runs the road till it hits a track, kills a deer, comes back, hits the road again till it hits a track, kills a deer. In the old days, they'd have to make their way through the forest and and no roads, fighting through the underbrush. I mean, that's it's harder for them to to kill animals with roads. It's easy. And, and they've done a pretty darn good job of reproducing and wiping out the deer and the, you know, a lot of the elk that the cougars lived on, and now the cougars are kind of hungry. Yeah. They can't compete. They're being out-competed. Out so, so now I was walking down the road. There's a cougar, and you know it came out of the brush beside the road, full-on, like, leapt right at me, and I just swung and shot. Can I ask you two quick questions about that? Mm-hmm. Is it true that bear spray does not work on cougars because of their membranes in their eyes? I you know here's what I think about bear spray. If any animal is coming to get you, you might as well throw popcorn at them because it's the same effect. It, it make make you feel better about yourself and that you're you know taking proactive steps to protect yourself in the wildlands. And certainly it's better than nothing, but it's not much better than nothing. And that's you know I I think in the situations where the animal is turned away, it was probably going to be turned away anyway. You know, it was, it was hesitant. It's not a... Now, you know, I can't say that that's a fact because, you know, if if that cougar, maybe I could have sprayed him in the face when it was leaping through the air at me. And, and you know, he'd have gone, oh, you know, cough, cough. And Did you shoot it? I killed it dead. It was... Uh, and thank goodness it was me and not, you know, some hiker or biker or... Child. Backpacker or child. Yeah, I mean, thank goodness. And you're a big guy. I thought that they only went after small people. <laughs> Again, a total fallacy. They go after meat. I mean, how big is an elk? They'll kill an elk. Exactly. The other rumor that I heard when I was really young was if I were to ever be attacked by a cougar, to shove my arm down its throat. Have you ever heard of that? Well, I mean, that's a start for the cougar. That's, you know, it's like, <laughs> right. why not? You know, that's good. Okay, I'll eat that first. Okay. I, I you know, here's the, here's the only thing. If, if, you're attacked by any wild animal now it depends and you have to know the situation a little bit but if it's a cougar you have to fight like you've never fought in your life because it is for your life is it like sharks are you looking to gouge the eyes out you, anything if you're you know there's no marcus of queensbury rules when you're being about to be eaten get straight on them yeah well, yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean you, you gotta be feral you gotta you whatever instincts that you have inside you, you're, you're the, you are the result of a million years of evolution, if you believe in that, or 6,000 years, whatever. 
you, you know, you're the result of it. You're the best of the best. Now, you know, maybe we're not quite as best of the best as we are now that there's 7.5 billion of us surviving this world, but certainly up to 100 years ago, we were the best of the best of the best. And that means that your ancestors had to fight and survive and, and propagate to make you. It means they were the best. So they were facing the same type of a situation as, as you would be facing if you're attacked by an animal like that. So you fight. You fight with every molecule in your body and every ancestral instinct that, that you can reach. And it'll all be there if you're willing to embrace it, unless you're a victim. You know, if you're, if you're just going to roll over and be dead, then, you know, that's, like I say, there's 7.5 billion of us nowadays, and, and not all of us still have that strong instinct to survive inside of us. But but I think most of us do if, if we just accept it and, 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 like I say, fight. You have to fight. Now, if a you know, 500-pound grizzly bear has got a hold of you and it's just angry, you know, like if you bumped into it with its cubs or... You know, you know, bumped into it when it had a kill, and it's just angry at you because grizzly bears will, will be extremely aggressive if they're upset. But it's it's a like it's a temper that boom 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 boom, and you know they'll, they'll beat on you. If you fight back on that, they're going to keep they just kill you. They'll keep going until they kill you. If you just that's where you get that play dead stuff, and and that does work in those situations if they're just angry. But you have to know the difference between just angry and stalking you for food. Mm. If it's stalking you for food, then you have to fight. You have to fight with your fingernails, your teeth, you know, gouge eyes. Who, who cares? You know, if sticking your arm down their throat, if you stick it down far enough and get a hold of their heart, then great. You know, heck, you're going to survive because it's going to stop biting you at that point. Uh, you know, and again, I'm, I'm taking it to the extreme there, but, but it's, you have to do what you got to do to survive. Now, you know, that cougar, if it would have got a hold of me, you know, I'm 210, 215 pounds, and, and it was, you know, would have been a 140-pound cat, but it was starving. It was emaciated at oh. probably 90 pounds to 100. Oh, but no. I don't know that I could have, you know, I'd like to think that I could have fought it off, but I suspect I couldn't have. You know, my cameraman was there, so he had had to clunk it on the head with a camera, and then hopefully it attacked him, and I could get, you know, if I didn't have, you know, my gun... I don't know, get a hold of a knife. If I didn't have a knife, get a hold of a rock. If I didn't have a rock, get a hold of a stick, you know, or smarter, run away, let them eat my cameraman. That's uh, <laughs> right. way smarter thing to do in terms of survival. Do you mind if I do a quick rapid fire on some hot topic sure, discussions? Public land controversy in the States without going into a major discussion about it. Do you feel any responsibility to be an advocate for that, seeing as you are a Canadian who lives in Canada? You know, Ryan Zinke is the Secretary of the Interior down there. We've never had a Secretary of the Interior in the States that will sit at a table with hunters and, and have a dinner with them. You know, I've had dinner with Ryan Zinke. You know, you, you've got Donald Trump Jr. is, is a, an avid hunter. Uh, you know, when have we ever had the son or daughter of the President of the United States that will listen to what we're saying as hunters. I think Ryan Zinke, you know, he he was a hero. You know, he, he's special forces, SEAL team member. He's a hunter, grew up, you know, not with a silver spoon, and he's looking after hunters' interests. The problem is, you know, we think he's taking away public lands, you know, from us as hunters or fishermen. In fact, he's opening them up. But what he's doing, he's he's having to 
um, is having to pay attention to all the other user groups too. So we're never going to get, you know, everybody get booted out. No more kayakers, no more snowboarders, no more backcountry backpackers and campers. You know, we just want it for hunters. Well, that's just not realistic in this world, except that we all use that outdoor space and it has to be, it has to be set up so that all of us have access to it. Be very, very thankful that Ryan Zinke's in there making sure that we have access to it as hunters because it's a lot easier for him to just say, no, no hunting. And that'll make, you know, that 90% out there that just jumps on whatever bandwagon's being in the press these days, that'll make them happy and make his life way less miserable. But he's actually standing up for us. And and so, you know, I, I mean, I talked to him. He said there's 13 different agencies under the interior ministry or whatever they call it down there in the States that that has to be consulted before you can change the course of a stream. Thirteen. And he, he said it, it, you end up with a bureaucratic nightmare, a quagmire. It's too much government. So he's, he's put them all under one. Well, that that's smart to me. You know, now whatever the result is of his smart actions is, is going to be the result. And, and so, you know, I, I'm not smart enough to know. You asked me a question about public land use. I'm not smart enough to know everything that's involved. I believe he is, and I believe he is privy to everything that's involved with that. And I believe that, you know, as a hunter, he has respect for wildlife, for the wildlands, for the habitat. And, you know, as a, as a public uh, figure, he's got to address everybody's demands for that public land as well. So I believe in the man, and I believe in Ryan Zinke, and I think that he's going to do what's best for the people, and for hunting, you know, as part of that, but not hunting only, and not just the people that want to have that park for themselves, the, you know, wilderness society of whatever description. You know, this is for the people. Someone has to pay the bill, you know, and, and, and if you've got, if that means you have to develop a little piece of it, you have to develop a little piece of it, because what are you going to keep doing? Printing money? Well, and what? You know, someday someone's going to have to pay for that, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, you know, maybe maybe us even, you know, if it happens quick enough. So so I think he's a common-sense guy that's making common-sense decisions that everybody's upset about because everybody's so self-interested that they don't, they don't have the bigger picture in mind. I think he does. And when you make a, um, you know, you ask my opinion on public lands, here it is. I shouldn't have an opinion because I'm not smart enough. And, you know, I'm not a dumb guy, but I'm not privy to all the information. Let the people that, that you believe in make the decisions. And, and so I, I think, he's, I think he, whatever he's doing, he's doing right. But as a non-resident, your aunt, just the tone in your voice answers my question. You are still passionate about it. Of course. Even as non-resident. It's, because it's, this world is, there's no place in this world that we haven't affected. We, we're, we're managing every single wildlife population out there. There is no wild animals anymore. We manage it. So this is this is our world now. Mm-hmm. You know, the United States is is our world. Mexico's our world. China's our world because you know, decisions that they're making affect us over here on Vancouver Island. And and yeah, I, I of course I'm passionate about it because there's there's wildlife there and I'm passionate about wildlife. It doesn't matter that someone put a border and called it well, this is south of the forty ninth. So I shouldn't have, uh, you know, any, I couldn't care. Yeah, that's totally, ridiculous. Totally right. Um, more ethical shooting a gun or shooting a bow? Yeah, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a 
really truly a philosophical question because you're you know i mean the, here's here's the thing a rifle in the hands of a competent person will kill very quickly and effectively a bow and arrow in the hands of a very competent person will kill very effectively uh, you know either in the hands of someone who's not capable or pushes the limits of what that that firearm or bow and arrow is capable of in their hands then it doesn't neither one's ethical it, it, it it's all about the person that's pulling the trigger um, or the trigger release on a bow it's it's nothing to do with uh, with it's you know it's like blaming guns for killing people guns don't kill people you know people kill people and they use guns and that's why it's not a you know neither one's unethical or ethical it's 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 all about the person using them that works for me last two questions i watched a documentary on ice age animals or mammals that were wiped out and there's a scientist or a biologist in michigan who suspects that when Homo sapiens hunted the mammoth, that by them hunting the mammoth, it ended up wiping out like the long-toothed tiger and the cave bear. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that Homo sapiens back in the Ice Age could have been responsible for extinction? Well, I mean, he's probably talking about the Clovis people that, you know, 12,000 years ago that they were efficient killers. And, and, you know, I mean, he obviously he wasn't around back then. So, I, you know, I mean... Yeah, I guess I guess we could have been responsible for that, but I suspect it's climate change. You know, we we like to think of ourselves as cosmic events. We're we're not. We're not. I mean, we didn't cause the last ice age. We didn't cause the last ice age before that, or the one before that. We didn't cause. You know, where, where's all the dinosaurs? You know, it, it's we're easy to blame, and and it's, it seems to be the the do it rigueur to to blame ourselves for every single thing that's ever happened. I mean, you know, for the mammoths to be wiped out by, by human hunters, I mean, I mean 12,000 years ago, they were gone by, you know, arguably 10,000 years ago. So in 2,000 years, we wiped all the, wiped out all the mammoths. I mean, I guess, I mean, we, we hardly even that's spread the across I the thought. states. I actually almost stopped the documentary. No, it's, it's, it's being... It's catering to political correctness. And then, right, like I say, de rigueur, it's to blame us for everything. And the guy will probably get all kinds of funding to go continue his studies. Mm-hmm. And scientists have to pay mortgages too. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what mortgages you think you're going to get paid for better with proving that the world's ending, the sky's falling in, and we've got, you know, what was it, global warming, but now it's changed into climate change. Proving that, asking money to prove how bad we are, or to prove that no, everything's kind of fine. You know, what do you get money for? And a scientist is sitting there going, "I got to pay my mortgage. I got kids that have to go to school. I got to dress them with shoes." And you know, goodness sakes, they're going to want to go to university someday. I think I'm going to prove that this world is ending. You know, and, and so yeah, I mean, I'm sure the guy has all kinds of reasons to believe that we wiped out all the the woolly mammoths and the mastodons, and and because of that, the big predators are gone, and and you know, we're horrible. Yeah, or or you know what? Nature is just nature, and nature does what nature will, and, and it always has done. I mean, we're we're not a cosmic event in, in terms of the Earth's age and what's been going on for hundreds of millions of years, and you know we wiped out mammoths. Who cares? Like really? Like blame the comet for killing the dinosaurs? 
Like you can't, it's, it just is. It just is, and the world changes. And in a million years, we're going to all be insects, you know, that are six feet tall. I don't know. You know, who knows? <laughs> and, but whatever it is, one thing for darn sure, and this is what they all fail to to account: the biomass of this planet hasn't changed one iota. It's still the same. It just changes form. And and who who in the world gave us the right to say that our form is the right form? You know, it's just a form that the biomass takes for this eon, and, and I'm sorry if that offends someone of a religious bent, but it's just, you know, I mean, get over yourselves. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we okay, so we, we killed the mammoths, but we replaced them with bison. Oh, wait, we killed the bison, but we replaced them with cows. You know, it's all the same biomass. It just changes shape and changes form. It's not, you know, it doesn't have big curly tusks and, you know, but they have, you know, they've got udders and, and horns now. I mean, what's the difference? It's just it like... The like man say, has spoken. <laughs> yeah, yeah, just get over yourself, everybody. Last question. Thoughts on high fences? That, that's that's a, um, a, you know, it's a hot button topic, obviously. But I can tell you that, that high fences, it's not cut and dried. It's not black and white. Can you, you just explain in summary to my listener? What a high sure. Okay. Is. There's there's free ranging hunting where where animals are free to go anywhere they want. Uh, pick Tanzania, for instance. They can go anywhere. Or the Yukon. They can go. There's no high fences. Then there's places in this world like South Africa and Texas where people build eight foot high fences with barbed wire or with uh, with electric wire around them, and they can control then the animals inside that area. Now some of these areas. Are, are vast. I mean, 20,000 acres, 50, 100,000 acre areas with a big high fence around them. Now, in South Africa, that has been the reason that there's now something like 80% more wildlife in South Africa than there was 40 years ago. High fences. And hunters are paying for those animals the, you know, to pay their way. So hunters will go to that rancher, they'll rancher will get money to allow them to hunt the wildlife on their land. So the rancher's making money. So he wants more wildlife, which brings in more hunters. It's this is an economic reality. It's commerce one oh one. If you didn't have those fences, you can't keep people out actually. You can't keep poachers out, you can't control them. They come in and, and there is no animals. Or if there's no hunters, for paying for those animals, they're going to take the fences down and put cows there or sheep, goats, pigs, horses, who knows what. I mean, there's 25 billion chickens in this world right now. They're the most successful single species bigger than a bread box that exists in this planet. It's the most consumed meat in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, goats are second, sheep third, cows, you know, there's 7 billion cattle in this world. So they'll replace that, that habitat that is good wildlife habitat with good cow habitat if you don't have the high fences. There, there's the conundrum. Same for South or down in Texas. There's people that have big ranches that make money on hunting and the animals can't really, I mean, they can't escape to the next neighbor's farm, but it might be 20 miles away. You know, it's a big area. So, so it's still hard, challenging hunting a lot of times. It, it has a sort of an ugly derogatory feeling about it because it's... it's uh, You like picture an animal against a fence. Yeah, them, you're, you're you know. thinking it can't get away. It's, it's, yeah. like a, it's like a penned animal as opposed to a fenced animal. But, but it, it's, the reality is that they're, you know, for instance, I'll, I'll give you some examples. What if it's a low fence, cattle fence, but 
the animals can't jump over it. You know, it's still contained. And, you know, think springbuck over in Africa. They don't, you know, or, or bontebuck. They don't jump fences. Even antelope have a great difficulty here in North America getting through a fence. Oh. So they're contained in a way already. Now, what, have, what about a high fence area where you're only allowed to hunt, uh, say, a quarter of it? You know, one quarter. Now the animal can get away inside that quarter and go to the other parts of the ranch. What about if the animal has a home range of only one square mile, but that high fence area is 20 square miles? You know, what would it matter if it's outside the fence or free range or not? So there, there's many different levels. It's not, it's not a black and white, you know, I hate it, I love it. It's not that. It's, it's good for wildlife. There's more animals out there than there ever was in South Africa and in Texas. You know, Texas has got the highest population of scimitar horned oryx. It's got the highest population of addicts in the world. You know, these animals, they wouldn't exist today except for the Texans with their high fences and hunter dollars paying for them because the ranch owners aren't going to throw money away on animals that aren't paying their way. So it's a, yeah, it may make people, you know, their stomachs turn that animals have to be killed to survive, but... You know, if it doesn't pay its way these days, it's gone. You know, how's that saying go? If it pays, it stays. And we are so economically driven in today's world that we we just wouldn't let it happen. We wouldn't waste our, we can't afford to. You know, for esoteric reasons, well, if you're a billionaire, maybe, and how many of those of us are there? The rest of us are trying to pay our mortgages. So, you know, we're not going to have animals that are, sucking us dry of our life savings because they're pretty. You know, it's not going to happen. There has to be some compensation back to keep those pretty animals there. And unfortunately, wildlife isn't as economically viable as cows, domesticated animals, pigs, goats, chickens, sheep. You know, th- those are easy to manage for a rancher. Wildlife is far more difficult. Now, the rancher may well love wildlife and want more wildlife, but you have to give them money. It's some kind of an incentive economic incentive or he's not going to just do it it's not you know and sorry 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 but that's the way it is this is the world cows are you know they get it cows die so that they can live you know okay you know go ahead kill one of us and let a hundred of us live and and you know people have this idea that wildlife should be untouched well that's great but what you end up doing with that mentality is loving the wildlife to death And that's happening all over the world right now. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 